gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Who would have guessed that both things would bring you this podcast? I am very excited this morning because it's early and I am well caffeinated. And um, we have a uh, a good friend of mine, good friend of the podcast, good friend of Western civilization uh, to come on this morning and start what is going to be our 12-part series. I probably should have told Caleb about this before. Um, we're going to do a really deep, deep, deep dive on the whole issue of Whoopi Goldberg's theories of the Holocaust. <laughs> so, uh, Chris Starwalt, welcome back to The Remnant. Well, I, for one, am glad because I've already, you know, I'm. How, what would Hegel say about it? I've got questions. I've got answers. Let's party. You know, I got to say, as a Goldberg, mm-hmm. that I am starting to suspect that she is not, in fact, a real Goldberg. Not certainly not taking her Jewish heritage seriously. Yeah. The the um when this was first brought to my attention, uh, I thought, well, what did you expect would happen? This is like a uh the view, like much of uh chat television, is like giving toddlers firearms and then being surprised when uh children get injured. These are dummies uh, who are trying to fill a far too large a space with words, uh, and they're playing with concepts that they don't understand. So, of course, it's going to be dumb. That's why I don't watch The View. Yeah, I mean, I was going to go with a slightly different metaphor, something along the lines of um, throwing uh, bags of cocaine and tasers <laughs> into the dorm at UNLV. Um, but it's the same principle, right? No, it just Yours is better. Yours is far better because yours will involve in- inevitably sports gambling. <laughs> Things could go... All my, my only point is that decision, decision trees can go awry. That's right. Um, that's right. And um, no, uh, like, I, it's one of these... You know, there are these things uh, that are... Our culture spends way too much time on that are, I think the best way to capture my feeling about a lot of them, not all of them. Sometimes I do fall for it and get really angry on some of this stuff, but so much of it is like, rarely have I been so torn about something that matters so little, right? You know? yeah, <laughs> There's yeah, yeah, so yeah. much of that stuff. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind of exhausting being told that you're, you're, one of the things that Twitter makes you do and social media makes you do is is it kind of like bullies you into having an opinion on things that you shouldn't have to have an opinion on? I, I, I never tweet. I'm really, uh, you know, well, first to make at the risk of making a serious point, I will say anti-Semitism or uh, issues relating to Jews uh, is where the woke movement or intersectionality or whatever we want to call it comes a cropper, right? This is this this is where and we remember Randy Weingarten talking about Jews are part of the master class or whatever ownership now. class ownership, ownership class. class. So it 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 reduces us to such silliness that it sort of reveal it, it is the reducto ad absurdum of the wokeness or intersectionality or anti racism uh, as a religion. But I will also say. I am reminded, you know, I'm trying to finish a book and I realize making people have opinions is, a, is generally a bad thing, right? Uh, the good part about a Republican system of government is that we are supposed to give our uh, imprimatur to other people for two years at a time. Here you go, congressman, congresswoman, you go and take this. Here you go, senator. Here you go. Mr. or Madam President, you take this and go, and then we'll and then we'll have a performance review every two years for some of you and decide who gets to stay and who gets to go. The upside of that should be that we would be freed from having to obsess over questions like whether an actress was anti-Semitic or just stupid or blah, 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 blah. And we certainly, we, we are not taking the upside of the American system in pretty profound ways. And social media helps us to do that. Yeah. I mean, I just think about like, let's just say, let me just say, assert that, uh, there's an outbreak of typhus in 
a suburb out of outside of the capital of Azerbaijan. Okay. And I start poking you with a sharp stick and I keep saying, tell me your opinion about what they should do. Tell me your opinion about what they should do. You know, like you might, you know, monkeys banging on typewriters come up with the perfect, you know, solution to it. But you know, it's, it's sort of like there's that, that, that trying to, Trying to pinching 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 people psychologically to weigh in on stuff that they otherwise I'm not saying that they're not qualified to have opinion. Everyone's qualified to have an opinion, but it's like it it's 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 very much as I was wrote about this in the G file recently. You know, Julian Benda and Treason of the Clerks or Treason of the Intellectuals in, in the English uh language version. Um he talks about how intellectuals in the in the in the twenties were committed to the the organization of political hatreds and that seems to me like what the the guys with the cattle prods going after the mob does on twitter all the time and i I guess we should talk about it ever so briefly have you followed what happened to uh my friend and friend of the podcast uh Ilya shapiro yes i was uh, a a mutual friend uh sent me the relevant details and I well first tell me as of this recording what is the state of play has his professorship been rescinded at Georgetown his position has not been rescinded but they so they uh, in part because he had already signed an employment contract is my understanding but lawyers they had um they agreed not to fire him but they immediately put him on uh a double secret probation yeah some sort of i i've i've seen it described either non-punitively or punitively as but as, as basically on administrative leave suspension whatever while they conduct some sort of investigation and this is the problem that drives me this is the thing that drives me crazy is like what's the investigation going to turn up i mean the the whole story was the deliberate misreading of some of, of a couple really badly worded tweets but you have to have known you have to have you have to want to read into what Ilya tweeted. The the one that I read was that he said it is unfortunate that this candidate, who I prefer, who is a liberal, who he knows uh, and would 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 theoretically please progressives uh, uh, in his judicial worldview, uh, was being passed over in favor for a less qualified black woman. No, so the, 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 the poisonous phrase, which he apologized for and deleted was lesser black woman. And so oh. people intuited that or asserted that, uh, led by probably, uh, probably tendentiously claimed. Yeah. So like uh, Mark Joseph Stern, that guy, uh, he, he's the one who sort of chummed the waters asserting that, um, or at least tendentiously insinuated that Ilya meant that Black ontologically and epistemologically yeah. and through the eyes of God, all female blacks are lesser to are, are, are of lesser quality of as human beings than um, than others or than an Indian American guy. Um, yes, that's that's the that's the funny part that it imagines that libertarian Ilya Shapiro uh, has a uh, sort of a uh, Margaret Sanger level uh, or Third Reich level uh, uh that his strata for racial hierarchy is so thin that the strata are so thin that he delineates between an Indian man and a, and an African American exactly. woman. Well, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's huge at Cato um, is phrenology. I mean, they got it's calipers huge. just lying around all over, over the there. place. Yeah. They, 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 they check your COVID form and then they, then they touch your head all over before you can go into the building. Um, but yeah. So like when you're talking about how Jews are, um, they're like bad code in the intersectionality software. Um, increasingly, Asian Americans are too. Um, and so, like, I, I don't want to go over all of this too much again because I talked about it last week and all that. But like, let what was your take? What is your opinion um, on how Biden handled this appointment so far about making a campaign pledge in public? Um, to appoint a black woman, are, are Republicans as hypocritical as uh, Democrats want to claim they are? You know, wh- what is your, how do you describe, coming down on all this as I continue to make words come out of my mouth for no reason? Well, let's 
start with my hope that the Supreme Court is going to continue to be less important in American political life uh, and that we're on a good that we're on a good track uh, there. And whatever anybody thinks about Justice Roberts's decisions in individual cases, uh, the idea of a, a, a more humble court uh, is has been a good thing. And deference to the legislature has been a good thing. Um, and I hope that if uh, Roe v. Wade is overturned, this will be another quantum leap forward uh, in the Supreme Court being a less um, less of a political issue. But as it currently stands, one of the the purpose of a primary platform uh, is substantially outdated. But the president, but the promises of a presidential candidate are still crucial because it's a bargain between the candidate and the activist core of the party that sets the parameters for what he will he or she will do and say that they will do that they will they will be seen in public with these positions and it also limits what the activists can demand for the period between July and November right that they that, that everybody says this we we discuss this and making explicit promises about the Supreme Court is now part of that. <clears throat> Donald Trump's uh, deference to uh, Leo and the Federalist Society and to say that I will only take judges from this list uh, makes sense because he was not trustworthy uh, and had said dumb things about the Supreme Court uh, and had had shown a willingness to to enthusiastic ignorance. So this was a promise that he made to conservatives on an issue that was important to them. Biden's promise is, I see as a different and older kind of thing. I see this as the transactional identity politics of the first, you know, from almost all of the 20th century, right? Uh, black women made Joe Biden president. Um, black women uh, in South, black men came out in large numbers too, no question. But when you look, when you look at what the exit polls can tell us, and what uh, surveys can tell us, and what what county and precinct level data can tell us, black women saved Joe Biden's candidacy, and by the way, probably were responsible for uh, the fact that Donald Trump is not president today. Because what black women prevented was goo-goo white progressives uh, getting high on their own supply and nominating somebody who would lose. And the the closeness of the electoral vote, uh, the, the three states made the difference, tells us that had Democrats nominated Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or, goodness gracious, Pete Buttigieg uh, to run against Donald Trump, it's pretty easy to see how they would have lost uh, because of what we saw with suburban, uh, particularly suburban women. So these black women saved Joe Biden and delivered victory for the Democratic Party. And I read it not as black women are superior, but I owe you one. And I promised you the vice presidency. And I'm also going to give you now a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, I, I basically agree with that. I mean, look, the, the idea that that presidents always pick the most qualified person um, is sort of ludicrous. I mean, my favorite story about Sonia this Sonia Sotomayor. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, no, but like the best was, um, God, what was it? It was Senator Roman Hruska from Nebraska. Was yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. And Nixon appointed, Nixon nominated some schmuck and the 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 line on him was that he was really a mediocre appointee and a mediocre legal mind and ruska said look don't mediocre people deserve representation on the court too exactly <laughs> and, and, earl, and, <laughs> earl warren uh was no jurist uh how long was abe fortis on the court you know before before he was bounced over ethics charges the idea that the supreme the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court is too political now. But the idea that it is not a political entity at all is that's flummery. That's just that's not right. how that's supposed to work. My problem with it as a as a philosophical thing. Well, there. Right, so there's a political problem. I would just rather, uh, you know, as as I wrote in my book Suicide of the West, you know, civilization is really just the story we tell ourselves about ourselves. It's like right. And I would have no problem 
assuming that you know they meet minimal, certain minimal requirements which it sounds like these women on this list do for sure i have no problem with biden putting a black woman on the court in fact i could make the case that it's overdue and that we should have a black woman on the court. those arguments are not um you know entirely spurious to me that's all fine what i have a problem with is pre-committing uh because you undermine you put a stigma on the candidate you put a stigma on the process and you also um suggest that somehow there is um you know what what the what the weird sociologists call uh polylogism which is like the that different kinds of people think different ways and that somehow because you're a black woman that you are going to approach what the text of the law of the constitution means differently um i find problematic and and i find it problematic that somehow you are supposed you know if you re actually read the oath of the supreme court you're supposed to like leave all of your heart-wrenching wonderful life stories behind <laughs> and and actually like read the constitution and and read the law and interpret it correctly and so i would have much preferred if biden needed to promise clyburn that he was going to put a black woman on the court i would have much preferred if biden had the intestinal fortitude to say to clyburn you have my you know you have my oath that i will do that but I'm not going to say it in those words when I go out on the stage tonight. Instead, what I'll do is I'll say sort of what Reagan said, which is I, I obviously I'm going to look very closely. I would love to put a, a black woman on the court. We will look at all candidates, blah, 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 uh, which is sort of what Bernie Sanders said. Right. And um, and that way you could have a short list that had two or three black women on it, but also had Sri Srivanson or however you pronounce his right, name right, right, right. And, a, and a bunch of other people. And then you are, in terms of like the story we tell ourselves, you can make the case that the person that you picked was the most qualified of the entire field by your lights. And that would be better for a black woman going on the court than this sort of way. It's the same thing with the vice presidential thing. The idea that you're going to lock yourself into um, a specific subset demographic category i just I, I think it's a bad way to talk about politics and i think it's a bad way to talk but but it's worse to talk about it in terms of the court than it is to talk about it in terms of a vice president because we all know that vice presidents are basically meat props anyway so <laughs> well depend de depending in this case this is a meat prop that they would like to put into a drawer and uh hide away well um, except for the fact that donald trump this week said that kamala harris as the power to decide the next president but we can talk about that in a minute yes 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 uh <laughs> dear god um so first on the philosophical part and it's the same problem that we have observed with affirmative action speaking of the supreme court which is the the terrible part of affirmative action is that it creates the impression among both the majority group and the minority group that the individuals who have obtained high status positions have gotten there unfairly uh, and not just on their merits. This is bad for this is this is the price of affirmative action. There are those who still argue that uh, it is a price worth paying to create advantages for people whose ancestors were uh, held down by the rule of law. And I'm not saying that it's a it's a preposterous position, but it it must be acknowledged that it always comes with that price. And it's a bad one. And it's what you're talking about, whether it's with the vice president or certainly with the Supreme Court. But for Biden, the political reality is this. By saying in 2020, I will pick, did he, he, he said a woman of color. Yeah, I guess he did. He explicitly said a woman of color. And uh, with the Supreme Court nominee, what does it do? It protects him. Biden's biggest problem is that a third of his party is crazy. And they will do anything to, the, they're not as crazy as the Freedom Caucus in some ways, but they're also crazier because they're willing to inflict damage at a pretty high scale on the party. Looking at what happened with 
the Build Back Better uh, thing and the infrastructure bill, looking at uh, non-citizen voting in New York, looking at the Chicago teacher strike, looking at the number of things that progressives keep doing that are in an election year or close to an election year and very damaging, and they don't care, and they're willing to do it. Um, so they're they're a credible threat. If Biden hadn't said that he was going to pick a black woman for the Supreme Court, how would the discussion be going today, right? The discussion today would be, will you pick a pure lunatic, right? Will you pick a Berkeley law professor uh, who believes the Constitution is invalid? Will you, and, and the the very online left would be gathering around different candidates about, well, you better choose this. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's opinion would matter. But by, but by retreating into identity politics uh, and um, the, I'm drawing a blank on her name right now, I'm sorry, the leading candidate who's recently confirmed to the D.C. Court of Appeals. I, I don't want to butter it either. Katanji Brown-Jackson, I think, is right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Judge, if I got it wrong. But um, here is an eminently qualified, recently confirmed, well-vetted person. She's like the John Roberts of the left, right? From an early age, I think she clerked for Breyer. She has been cultivated. She has cultivated herself. She has made herself into a perfect kind of Supreme Court nominee. Woe betide any progressive who is going to step out and say, no, I don't think she's good enough for the Supreme Court because that's when identity politics will come and, and boot that person onto the face of the moon. So you're 100% right that it is bad from a philosophical standpoint to have identity come before qualifications uh, even, uh, or to even remove the, the, the notion, the idea, the, the, the fiction is helpful even, uh, as you described it with Sandra Day O'Connor. Um, that is all true. But I understand from Biden's perspective why he does this stuff, because it protects him from the loony left. That's an interesting way to put it. That's interesting. Um, on this, uh, this comparison that you um, stumbled into of the wacky left versus the wacky right and how like the House Freedom Caucus is crazier. I spent a lot of time thinking about this ace, how to think about the asymmetry between the two sides. I mean, yes. There are some times where Elon Omar says stuff that is almost as bad as what Paul Gosar says. But for the most part, I think you're right, is that the the sort of call it the squad, which is actually larger than those four people. But the the, right. the, the, the hardcore progressives. Yeah. Yeah. The progressive caucus squad adjacent. Um, they're not I mean. When they actually, see, this is the problem, right? I think on economics, the House Freedom Caucus guys are closer to right than the 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 squad people, but that's because I'm a conservative, and at least the Freedom Caucus people still talk about free markets every now and then. Sometimes, unless, yeah. yeah, unless there's a there's an industrial policy thing that has the Trumpist imprimatur on it, but or if it's time to send out two thousand dollar checks to every American ahead of an election, right, right, right. Um, but let's be fair about that. That was just craven. Uh, it was yeah, an attempt yeah, yeah. at craven vote buying, right? More totally, than anything else. Totally. But um, I think the, the the key difference in the sociologies between the two side is that as much as the 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 sort of squad crowd thinks that they are radicals and revolutionaries, you know, pressing for social change and social transformation and all that kind of stuff. Um. They also understand that they actually have entree into elite circles, the likes of which, uh, you know, the House Freedom Caucus guys never will. I mean, like Jim Jordan is never going to the Met Gala. I was, I was going to say what Jim Jordan will never even wear a jacket for the Met Gala. He's not <laughs> he, he's going, but he won't wear a jacket. Yeah. So like there is a there's there's a weirdly sort of moderating function that being basically creatures of of elite schools with friends who are bookers at um you know mainstream media places and you're dating reporters from the new york times or the washington post and 
you go to the same parties as people from the Ford Foundation and all these kinds of things. It makes our elite institutions more left wing than they should be, which is, I mean, way more left wing than they should be. But it also kind of creates an investment in the existing status quo and establishment for the as a sort of social psychology for the squad crowd. And meanwhile, you know, the Paul Gosar, Marjorie Taylor Green people, they really are so much more distant from elite society that it creates there's just a real asymmetry there that I think well, it, it's hard to talk to people about. I look, yes, of course. Uh yes, absolutely. Um in terms of the institutions of high culture and in academia. Uh, yes, absolutely. The commanding heights of the culture as Lenin or Steve Bannon would say. Uh, and, and they ain't so commanding anymore though. Right. Uh, True. The, hei- the heights ain't what they used to be. Um, and I, there's a podcast I uh, love called smartless, uh, with Jason Bateman, Will Arnett and, um, uh, the guy from Will and Grace. And uh, he and they had Michael Moore on. And they're talking to Michael Moore about this stuff. And I'm like, why are you doing this? And then I remembered like, oh, this is the conventional discussion for dummy Hollywood, right? This is like having Michael Moore on is not controversial because yeah, that's what we're all talking about. But of course, if they had you on, it would be like, people would be self-immolating outside of Jason Bateman's home. They would be boycotting Ozark. So yes, that is all still true. But I will also say I watched Edward Raphael Cruz, the junior Senator from Texas appear on Tucker Carlson's television show. And in his auto de fe, as he was stripping himself naked and flogging himself with a cat of nine tails, he was railing against the corporate media. He said, you know, the corporate, the people in the corporate media. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? You're on the most (laughs) popular, the second most popular show on all of cable uh, that is uh, hosted by a very rich dude that is employed by a multinational corporation led by Australians. And (laughs) what? And there is a capacity, and this is not new, there is a capacity in all groups to believe that they are being brave right? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is celebrated at every turn, who is invited to all of these things, is called Braves, is called Brave, thinks of herself as Brave because she's standing up to the corporations, man, uh, and the fascists, man, even as she is being celebrated. Uh, Tucker Carlson or Ted Cruz are talking about those bad guys in corporate media, even as they are dominating the ratings and making billions of dollars of profits for a corporation. Everybody wants to pretend that they're a radical. Everybody wants to pretend that they're an outlaw. I think the, the, in, if we're measuring in terms of ideological lunacy, I think the, the hardcore progressives, there's a lot of fake progressives in the progressive uh, caucus. There, there's a bunch of, there, there's a, there's a, there are a bunch of uh, summer soldiers, if you will, on that side. I think the willingness to say and believe crazy, crazy stuff is stronger in the Freedom Caucus. But I think that the Freedom Caucus, like much of the Republican Party, is more about loyalty now uh, than ideology. Uh, certainly more than Republicans of 10 or 20 years ago. I think loyalty and obedience are a lot more important now than they were before. I think that, look, I, I think that's entirely right. You know, and I, I've been railing about how the the only way to really understand the the kabuki theater that we see on tv about our politics is to understand that there is no you know downtrodden rebels versus the elites it is just simply one faction of elites fighting another faction of elites you know when bernie sanders has country houses and millionaire income and he's talking about how he's fighting for the socialists and AOC is at the Met Gala and they're talking about fighting the elites and Ted Cruz, whose wife is a managing director of Goldman Sachs and who went to, and he went to right. Harvard and Harvard. Clerk of the Supreme Court. Yeah. You're not talking about, you know, taking tribunes from the slums of you know the Greek quarter in Rome and making them into league leaders. It's it's all just elites claiming to be fighting on behalf of their slice of the proles and pretending that they're not themselves elites. I agree with all that. Um, 
I think you're right about also the, the way to understand the GOP these days is, is has a lot more to do with just simply pure, you know, you can call it loyalty or popular frontism, right? Which I, and I hate popular. I mean, this is another thing. Like, like, no one gave me any grief on the right for 15 years writing against populism and popular frontism. And now all of a sudden that the GOP is a popular front populist party. <laughs> They're all like, what's wrong with you? And, um, and I think the best example is that you probably missed this because you're in book hell. Um, uh, Dave Bossy, who I have a still a somewhat warm place in my heart for on the personal a level, a funny, a funny guy, a and, funny, yeah. fun, decent guy in person, yeah. but really a force for not so good. Um, at the political level, and yeah, he, is, he, he he has definitely taken the continuous minor approach uh, at the face of the political decency. I think that's right. Yeah, that's that's way to put it. And um, he has filed to have uh, Kinzinger and Cheney formally expelled from the GOP. Is and that a thing? Apparently, it's a thing. I I don't quite understand it. Um, so the Republican National Committee. So as I understand it, uh. Cheney has already been deracinated by the Republican Party of Wyoming, right? Yeah, I think defenestrated is probably defenestrated. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So she she has been unrepublicaned uh, by the Wyoming Republican Party. So this would be a national undoing. She would be. It, this this dropped last night. I have not. It was a big Washington Post spread. I have not geez. done a deep dive on it, but that's my understanding. Um, and. He's partnered with some dude in Wyoming to like introduce some sort of resolution. And look, uh, on one level, it's like, I get it. There's a reason why you would want to do that. I mean, obviously I would oppose it, but, um, you know, my rule in politics for a really long time is, is, is don't judge political movements or parties by what they say they're for judge them by what they prioritize right you know and that's why like the libertarian party for years you could sure you're 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 totally in favor of privatizing electric utilities got it but the thing you're all putting asses in the seats over is more weed and um witchcraft and weed here we go yeah and so like like the, the party that doesn't move hell on earth to to expel gosar or marjorie taylor green or uh bobert or frankly donald trump but does move to throw Liz Cheney at just sort of underscores the point. There's no ideological litmus test anymore. It is purely loyalty litmus tests. And, and in this, in, in any case, cheap theatrics, Yes. the, uh, the idea. So let, let's, if the Wyoming Republican party says Liz Cheney, we don't want you anymore. You have to go They're It's they're within their rights and it's their state and it's their party. And it's, uh, and I want parties to take, stronger action, not weaker action. So even if it's an action I, I disagree with, uh, it's, or one that I think is, is foolish as I do in that case. Um, you know, we've gotten to watch the Lisa Murkowski story play out now for a dozen years where it's like, well, kill her. And she's like, no, no, oh no, 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 no. And they may be turning, uh, they may be turning Liz Cheney into the Lisa Murkowski of Wyoming and that's possible. And that will make her more powerful. But the idea that at a time when we are in a really kind of a shambolic moment, that any official would be taking time to strike out any individual member of Congress for their thoughts, words, or deeds uh, is cuckoo. This is election year. There's stuff to do. Even if even if you're just a pure partisan, there are so many other things that you should be doing other than that. And what it tells me is that the grift is so deep so that the the struggle that I have had with Republicans since 2016 has been not the number who are duped. Many are duped. And I my sympathies are with them, even if they would hate being being uh, uh, being pitied. And I understand it. But I really do feel for them because there are a lot of people who believe that the election was stolen and who believe that the microchips are in the vaccines and believe like they're there. They're the, the folks who are queuing up to read American greatness are there. They believe it. And I'm, I feel bad for them, but what has always been more troublesome are the larger number of grifters and how deeply committed to their grifting they are. Uh, and 
this is a tragedy and uh, uh, it makes me mad. So I, I, I don't know that what we've done so far qualifies as punditry. I mean, it's, I guess it, some of it has. Um, I mean, we've, we, 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 we have, we've, we have brushed, brushed against the dialectic, my friend. We, we have, we have, we have, we have uh, slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of philosophy. My God, my God, they should have sent a poet. <laughs> um, all right. So, uh, Again, I know you're in book hell and you agreed to do this at the last minute and all that kind of stuff. I, what, I don't know if you know this, but like we have stumbled into sort of AI week uh, on this oh, podcast yeah? because we recorded. It's still in the can one with Lyman. Stone, oh, the brilliant uh, Lyman Stone. It's, it's 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 really good. And we're just nowhere we're just of all things holding on to it. We got you today. I got who, who did I have last week? Our Russia colleague. Oh, Leon Aaron, of course. Yeah. Who was um, amazing. He's and fantastic. I know, and I will I will not compliment you because I am un, still under a Goldberg compliment moratorium, but I will compliment the producers of The Remnant to say that you have been on a hot streak. Uh, your show has been on a hot streak with great guests who are interesting and some from the left and some from the right and on a host of topics. And it's been edifying and really good. 2022 has been primo remnant stuff. Um. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad and to then, bring that all gl- glad to bring that all to a screeching halt today. And um, and then we're going to record another one with Hal Brands this afternoon. Which oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. So it's like a lot of. Yeah. And like the on the one hand, I feel bad about like going to the well. But on the other hand, I think AI is the greatest place in the world. And like because they're colleagues, they you know, it's 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 such an easier booking lift. And um, and I have no problem promoting and and shining a light on their stuff but i guess i could like go slumming and you spread it around you go you into the fighting pits around. and pull someone out of brookings you, one of these days you go to cei you go yeah, to yeah. cato you get around you get around i do i do get I have quite a few cato people on um um i'm i have a soft spot in my heart for the cato people um all right so anyway uh but we should do some more punditry here um uh gallop came out with their quarterly, I think it's quarterly, uh, party ID numbers. And um, some people uh, went screaming into the night with their hairs on fire about what a big deal it is that Republicans are now beating Democrats as as the majority uh, party affiliation. Plurality, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, or plurality, that's right. Um, The guys at 538 did a pretty good podcast sort of saying, it's significant, but maybe not the biggest deal that as big a deal as some people are making it out to be. Um, I'm of several minds on it. What What is your view on the whole thing? Well, first, go ahead and clip now any Republicans who talk about how awesome this is um, to uh, use in October when they are complaining about there not being enough Republicans in the survey samples. Um, just as a as a to please forgive me for using this phrase a teachable moment partisan identification varies individuals change their own partisan identification over time the reason that we do not control in polls for partisan identification is that the same individual in the course of one election cycle, maybe a Democrat, an independent, a Democrat again, may feel differently when they answer the phone. It's not a demographic. You would not want to set that as a demographic boundary because of exactly what this poll says, which is right now, Democrats are not feeling it, right? Uh, Republicans are reunifying to a substantial degree. Uh, The weakening hold of Donald Trump is helping to some degree with that. Uh, The success in Virginia helps with that. But, and I I think a a very big part in all of this is the myth of uh, Trumpist machismo of the uh, Il Duce of the Vegas Strip is that only he can fix it. Only he can beat Biden. Only he can prevent uh, the, the, the apocalypse. And as you watch Joe Biden, like watching him go through the press conference he did was like watching an old dog on a freshly waxed linoleum floor, just like trying to get across <laughs> without his legs going out. And he made it like he made it to the other side, just barely he had a couple of slips, but he, he basically made it. 
Watching Joe Biden, you say, eh, I, I doubt that there's only one human being in the world who could beat this person in a presidential election. So I think all of that has helped Republicans get back some of the old good feeling. But the biggest part of that poll is Democrats are bummed, right? And they don't, they don't want to be Democrats right now. Uh, some of them don't want to be Democrats because they feel betrayed. Some of them don't want to be Democrats because who likes losers? Democrats keep losing. We forget that in public opinion research, they say, well, do you want X, Y, Z? Well, yeah, I do want X, Y, Z. I, I do want to withdraw from Afghanistan. And then you, then the Afghanistan withdrawal takes place and it's a shambles. You say, well, I never wanted <laughs> That's not what I meant. I meant that when it happened perfectly, that's how I wanted it. So public opinion is fickle. Democrats are down. But there's nothing in that poll that we didn't already know from Virginia and New Jersey and from the generic ballot and everything else that keeps stacking up to say that Democrats are going to take it in the teeth in November. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. You know, the other point that Nate Silver made was that um, Gallup asks leaners. Yep. And if you're asking leaners, that means you're sort of by definition kind of squishy on this and you're going to change your identification based on the climate kind of thing. So reading it as a sign that the Republicans are now the we've had the realignment and Republicans are now the majority party in this country is way overblown. Reading it as a sign that the Democrats are in trouble is totally fair and correct. Right. I mean, yes, that's absolutely. That's sort of, um, gosh, you said something I wanted to follow up on and now I can't remember what the nor the normalness of this election cycle is quite reassuring to me. I take a lot of reassurance as a citizen that this midterm looks a lot like a typical midterm. I don't know whether the Republicans are going to win 15 House seats or 45 House seats. My number right now is a little over 30, uh, which would be a big, big win. But the average midterm gain for the party out of power in a president's first midterm since Ronald Reagan is 28. Uh, it would be so this we're, we're on track for a very normal kind of election. And the more that Democrats, a mistake for Democrats here is raising the stakes too high in this election, as opposed to saying, look, we have a record that we want to run on. We think it's good. We know that there are people who are dissatisfied, but we're going to go out there and mix it up the best that we can. The more that this is treated as like if Republicans win the House somehow, uh, as the head of the NAACP said, of the uh, the election law bills in the House, that the country will be unrecognizable. Uh, <laughs> you're like, uh, I kind of doubt that. So the the catastrophizing here, uh, it works against Democrats, both short-term and long-term interests. I mean, it'd be kind of wild if like a tourist visiting shortly after the midterms was like, is this Burkina Faso? I mean, this is like what totally unrecognizable. Exactly. What, I, I, never, I didn't mean to go to Kyrgyzstan. What is happening here? <laughs> Um, oh, that's what I wanted. I, so you, you, I had not thought of this. This is a good point. This is column worthy, which is high praise from a hack like me. Um, you know, we both talked about this a lot back in 2015, 2016, and, and, and subsequently about how I consider myself partly to blame in my own small way uh, for the rights in, in vestiture in Hillary Clinton in some kind of like supernatural ability to win to, to 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 conquer all of her enemies and to um um come out on top on everything even though she lost in 2008 i mean our our, our dear friend john Bedoritz sadly wrote a book called can't she be stopped and uh, <laughs> the answer was quite yes, so yeah um but so there was a, it was i don't think you get the flight 93 election if you had a different candidate than hillary clinton I mean, I don't get the flight 93 election essay if you had a different candidate than Hillary Clinton. There was some particular boogeyman fear about Hillary Clinton. I don't know. I, yeah. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. The and the, they had had since 1991 to do it. Right. Uh, their long experience with Hillary and Hillary Clinton is awful. Right. She is. Well, one also Hillary Clinton helped a great deal. Right. Yeah, I mean, she, she she's is, the politics of meaning person. She's the one who she, kept, you know, Sidney Blumenthal in the morally in the obtuse. Yes. Morally obtuse, awful, uh, uh, just rotten. And really, and her her pursuit of power at any price uh, is, you know, it's gross. And so she was she was uh, very suited to that kind of caricature. 
But I say here's Barack Obama, uh, a guy who in a lot of ways is kind of an inspirational figure. He's a lightweight, yes, but he's kind of inspirational and he's a, a he doesn't have much baggage. He had turned into a secret Kenyan Muslim uh, bent on destroying. I believe, and I don't know when it started, but the first time I noticed it was with Bush lied, people died. And it wasn't that George Bush had erred in his judgments about Iraq or that he had some kind of, uh, that he had, that, that he had, uh, some conflicting feelings that may have gone against good judgment, but that in fact it was on purpose, right? That he wanted the United States to get bogged down in Iraq somehow so that he could take the oil, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, what a monstrous thing to say. And it, it, speaking of Michael Moore, was mainstream. It was not a like, oh, just a few Democrats felt that way. And then I watched the birther thing with Obama. And it, I think we have reached a point now where the parties and subgroups within the parties are so isolated from each other in their informational intake uh, that it is possible to demonize, and we're just so well sorted, both ideologically, partisanly, and geographically, right? People don't know or encounter many people from the other side, that this kind of demonization is possible in a way that it wasn't before. Um, yes, I think that's right. So like, but the, the, the follow-up point, which I was giving you credit for, is that that's not Joe Biden. Right. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, yeah, it's, Biden, it's like, you're right. Biden totally confounds all of that. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's like, and it's one of the reasons why he won the nomination. It's one of the reasons why he won the presidency is like, there are many things to criticize Joe Biden for. And I have offered many of them, but he is not some sinister, deep state, woke, progressive, you know, ideologue who loves, you know, Saul Alinsky and all of those things that you could say about fairly or unfairly about Hillary Clinton and, and, and Barack just Obama, Google, just Google his mullet, just look for the pictures of him from the nineties with Bill Clinton when he's rocking a mullet, no way. And that was his great sort of immunity to the moment that we're in is his, the fact that, that if you dislike him, the criticism of him is, is, well, he's, he's, into, he's intellectually insecure and he's a motor mouth or he's getting too old, or he's too weak. I mean, like those are all criticisms that you'll hear from the right. Um, but you, but they're not criticisms that get. But it, it they're convent. They're criticisms that have applied to politicians since time immemorial. There are people in the founders' era that that applies to just as well. It's there's nothing you you can't pin any sort of anti-American sort of alien other thing on Biden. Unless you're Candace Owens, like you have to get to a very, and yeah, maybe this is what we would have said about birtherism at the time. I don't know, but you have to get to a very small goof, super goofy subset of Republicans to find that point of view. Right. It's sort of like, you know, you know, what was it? Um, I think it was Russell Kirk's response to the charge that Eisenhower was a secret communist. It was like, <laughs> he's not a communist. He's a golfer. Right. I mean, like that's exactly. that's sort of like if Candace Owens wants to make the case that, in fact, Joe Biden is some sort of Manchurian candidate uh, who, you know, has been around since, you know, literally since you and I were in, you know, he's been a senator since you and I were in short pants, you know, and um, he, uh, he came to the or elected office. I was born. I think that's right. He got there in what, 70 Two is that right? I think, uh, he he, I think he's wasn't he a Watergate baby? So 74? 70, 74. Okay, so at, at the time of my birth, it is possible Joe Biden was a senator. So uh, yeah, okay. he is he'd been around. Yeah, and then I was I was at you know I was already reading you know back issues of commentary at the ripe old age of five. Obviously, uh, so <laughs> smoking smoking cigarettes, reading commentary. <laughs> well, uh, given how much my parents smoked, at least by second hand, I was. Um, by the way. Do you think our children could ever understand how much people smoked? I don't think I can barely remember how much people smoked, but like 
People smoked in line. People smoked in the car. I remember when my mother acted like it was a great act of generosity that she would crack the window on in the car as she smoked and ashed inside the car. The, if 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 our children and I think old movies miss this all the time. People smoked, baby. Like my parents smoked. All their friends smoked. Everybody smoked. It was just like the normal state of being. So. You know, my parents were big, big smokers, and uh, my dad was a chain smoker, which people don't even know what the phrase means anymore. Chain smoker means you light the next cigarette with Off the, the one you're one. finishing, right? Yep. And, um, uh, and the thing, well, first of all, the the thing, everybody sort of our age and older knows exactly what I'm talking about. The problem with the gracious, I'm going to open the window to ash out the window thing, is that if your passenger window in the back seat isn't open all you get is the smoke blown basically towards your face and if you do open the window then you get the ash come back in your window and hit you in the forehead which happened to me throughout my childhood it or my mother reaching back uh to not strike me but like oh behave you you behave back there accidentally burning me, <laughs> accidentally <laughs> burning me with the cigarette it was just like this was just middle-class normal American life was that people smoked and uh, we, it was obviously something crazy that was a product of the twenties and thirties and it died in the nineties. But what a weird, what a weird moment in Western history that for like 70 years, people were like, well, I guess we should dry out these leaves of tobacco, light them on fire and suck them down our throats everywhere we go, including standing in line at the movie theater. Yeah. So my, uh, when, after my dad died, my mom hung out in our, the apartment I grew up in for a few more years, and then she finally moved out. And when we were going through, there were a whole bunch of books that I wanted to take that were like, you know, look, I mean, I have a lot of books in my house. You've been to my house. Uh, the apartment I grew up in had an enormous number of books, but the ones on the very top shelves in the living room were basically there for show. They were pretty books that, you know, the, the spines, you know, whatever. Cause you just, you'd have to get a ladder to get some of these books down. And so like they had been largely untouched for 40 years. And then you go up there and you realize that that's, they had been basically marinated in cigarette and cigar smoke. Yeah. Up at the top. Yeah, absolutely. For a half century. And you when you open them up, you could just see the tar line on the, on the, edges of all of the pages of hundreds like of cured books. meat <laughs> yeah exactly the, uh I, the my my favorite in that vein is my uh my family was a corporate family my father was a, a coal salesman he was a coal executive and i believe they lived in 13 houses or thir they had 13 domiciles over the course of their 50 some years of marriage and in their last corporate move and the way that the corporate moves is still go is that you just say, I don't know, you pack it up. I don't care. So after my father passed away, we were going through the giant room in the basement that was just full of boxes that had never been unpacked since the last corporate move. And going through one, we came to a carefully wrapped package and we undid it and found within a lovely uh, seashell shaped ashtray with my mother's cigarette still in it and the ashes <laughs> still in it they were like here we go keep it roll it out um yeah i mean i remember i remember when they started making only you could only smoke in the last seven rows of the theater as being like this major public health move that pissed off a lot of people brother when um, i arrived at hamden sydney college in 1993 there was an outrage over the fact that Virginia, a tobacco in, in those days still thought of itself as a tobacco state, uh, that they had banned smoking in line. Like, how dare you, sir? How dare you? If I am ordering my breakfast biscuit, you saying that I can't stand here and smoke. And it was considered like a <laughs> like a Patrick Henry moment for the smokers of Virginia. Now, if you were to light a cigarette inside, you would be attacked by people with fire extinguishers and dragged out by your heels. <laughs> um um, I remember, I can't remember who it was. I think I remember Norm Ornstein telling the story, but there was some guy who came back to Washington after like 20 years of being away and it was in the nineties. And he said, wow, the city's changed so much, but the thing I'm most surprised by, and this is some old cantankerous guy. And he was like, the thing I'm most surprised by is all of the hookers in front of all the buildings. 
And I was like, what are you talking about? Hookers in front of the buildings. And he's like, you can see them out there in their short skirts smoking. <laughs> and like, he didn't realize, like, you're not allowed to smoke in the building. And because you're like 80 years old. Yeah, he um, thought things were looking up. He was like, hey, this is all right. It's getting a lot easier. You don't have to you don't have to go up to far northeast. This is fine. But um, yeah, so like I, I, I still I think we've talked about this before. Every now and then. I'll find a bar. There's one in Fairbanks. There's one I've been into in Wyoming in the last five years or so on these cross country drives that we do, um, where you go inside and the sm- and they still allow smoking inside, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the mixture of the smell of stale smelt uh, spilled beer in carpet, yep, and cigar and stale cigarette smoke, right? It is. It is like you've gone through the wardrobe into Narnia. It takes you back to a whole other life that you've kind of forgotten. You have to add in the whatever kind of generic cleaning supplies that are used to try to keep the bathroom in some kind of humane order and clean up the rest of the place. And there's the um, chemical disinfectant that they use in the glass washer behind the bar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and it mm-hmm. combines to this smell that is medicinal sweet sour and the pungent and you're right it takes me back to woodsy's bar in fulton west virginia uh and uh, underage uh and overstimulated and all of that good stuff that was the those were those were the days may they never come again i mean you you did just describe quite aptly the smell of freedom it, that you know what that is clearly one of the smells of freedom. That, that, that I think any American of our age or older would say that 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 smelled like potential. So one last thing on the smoking. Well, two last things. So you know, my mom was a big smoker. She hasn't smoked in about ten years. Good for her. One of the reasons why I am so angry at the war on vaping is vaping basically saved her life. And um, my mom couldn't kick it, and it killed her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My mom tried to quit for fifty years. Uh, you know, sometimes with a little more effort than others, but uh, she couldn't do it. And then when they came out with that nicotine, you know, pen thing that she would smoke, all it took was a couple of hits after a meal to convince her brain to stop screaming at her and she could quit smoking. And, um, but she was a fierce defender of her smoking for most of her life. And um, when I was no more than five or six, I've told the story on Glop a bunch of times. Uh, you know, my mom would regularly say to me, one of my mom's favorite ways to start asking me to do something would say, even if I was in bed or on the couch watching TV, my mom would always begin by saying, Jonah, while you're up. <laughs> yes. And uh, and then she, but she would ask me to go downstairs on 84th and Broadway. There was a what we used to call a head shop, you know, or a smoke shop, whatever. And... Um, and she told me to go get her a pack of a carton of Lark cigarettes. And she smoked Larks. My dad smoked Larks. Really? No, I, you you seldom encounter. Had the charcoal filter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, my dad for a while smoked Carlton's as he realized that smoking was bad, and he said the problem with it is is that you have to you risk herniating yourself trying to get any flavor out of no, it. Yes, 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 yes. But um, uh, so I don't know how old I five, six, maybe seven at the oldest. I was a little kid. I mean, a little kid. And she sent me down to this place with, you know, back then you could get a carton of cigarettes for, I don't know, 20 bucks. She sent me downstairs with 20 bucks and, uh, you know, I could barely see over the the window counter thing. And I was like, can I get a car, uh, a carton of, of Lark cigarettes? And this poor immigrant lady from Pakistan or India was like, no, which to me is totally fair. Like yes. I, and, sure. and, and, and lawful, indeed. Yes, lawful and fair <laughs> and actually good citizenship all around. Yep. 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 And I went upstairs and I didn't, at the time I didn't realize that she was doing the right thing, but I went upstairs and I told my mom, they won't sell it to me. And my mom loses it, comes downstairs with me and chews out this poor lady and says, this is my son. You think he smokes? He doesn't smoke. I smoke. If I send him down here with money, you take his money because I'm the one buying it. And um, and she was okay with it. I was mortified. I'm still kind of mortified about it. Wes, Wes Anderson could not have writ it, written it better. Absolutely could not have written it better. But the most mortifying thing was in the 90s when the tide was really turning on smoking. And uh, my mom would carry an ashtray in her purse because they would not no longer put ashtrays on the tables because they didn't want smoking. And then she would just put out her ashtray and start smoking. And that 
you know, when you're 20 something, you got to start saying, mom, come on, stop it. Stop it. Right. Yeah. 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 And it, it was, I was mortified by my, my dad quit smoking long before my mom did. Uh, but I was mortified by their, by their smoking because in, but, and, and this is one of the eternal questions. Why did, and I think it, by the way, relates very much to social media and news addiction and informational addiction now. Why did America stop smoking? Did America stop smoking because of tobacco bans or because of a movement? And I think it's way more the movement. I think it's way more that Hollywood made a decision that it wasn't going to glorify smoking anymore. And they got mau mowed into, okay, we got to stop it. Um, I, I'm sure that cigarette taxes and indoor smoking bans did a great deal with the last hard end of smokers, because I know that for my dad, in fact, it was the indignity of having to go stand outside to smoke a cigarette that made him say to himself, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you doing, why are you doing this? If you're, if it's, if it's an assault on your comfort, you're really not enjoying this. Um, and I'm not saying it didn't have any effect, but I think what got them to the 10, what got anti-smoking to the 10 yard line in America was cultural stuff and societal pressure and us basically learning. I think a lot of it really was educational. I think it was a noetic problem to a significant degree that people needed to understand better how bad it was for you. Yeah, I think the, um, you know, part of it was also that smoking was for a lot of people a social lubricant. Yes. Like, let's go grab a smoke, that kind of thing. Or, you know, one of the more, you got to reasons go to the bar. If yep. all of a sudden it's now socially frowned upon to smoke, it kind of takes away for the people on the fringe, the sort of the appeal of the whole thing. Um, yes. All right. I want to give you points. I didn't at the time for using the word noetic. Um, <laughs> Maybe a remnant first. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, Here for it. Here for it. And, uh, you know, I was going to talk to you about like upcoming Senate races and all that, but, you know, we have so much time for that crap. Um, really we have time. And I, and I would also just generally, I, I would generally say this. We know what the climate is. And I would just remind folks, it's way too soon. We know what the climate is. Watch these primaries, see what you get, and and we can by by about filing deadlines will take place uh, are, are going to start really kicking in over the next several weeks. February is a big month for filing deadlines. Uh, February and March, so we'll know who's in and who's out. Uh, and by about Easter or so, we'll be able to really handicap these races. There's about seven or eight Senate races that are interesting. Uh, right now, potentially interesting, and we'll see. Um, when is your book coming out? Uh, uh, if the good Lord and uh, the good people of uh, Hachette Publishing uh, will allow it, it will be this summer, and uh, hopefully, we will it will it will come out in time uh, to we can we can talk about it going into the elections and how it's and how media stuff is affecting the election. Um, yeah, we're gonna have a lot of um colleagues book stuff coming down the pike because there's your book there's continetti's book um, well continetti i saw continetti the other night and uh i'm so t I, his book scares me because i'm going i know i'm going to have to read it i'm going to want to read it but that thing's got to be that's going to have to be some sort of a 600 page behemoth Mine, mine, you can keep uh, in in the bathroom and just sort of go at it whenever. Uh, but that thing is going to is that's going to have the displacement of a World War II era aircraft carrier. No, I'm looking forward to it because uh, you know I don't I don't agree with Matt on everything, but I can just attest that Matt has been doing his homework for a really really oh long my gosh. time. Totally. And, and there was a time when I kind of like wanted to occupy that space as the guy who knew all the stuff about conservative, and he's just overtaken me by leaps and bounds and you have to your passions are too great you have you you care so deeply about all of these things and and you you have dogs in the fight which makes your reading interesting and fascinating matt has a a, a degree of remove that i think is helpful to doing history um there's a fox and a hedgehog reference in there somewhere <laughs> yes but, yes uh, quite we, so quite so get to another time um all right uh, Chris Darwell, you are always welcome. You are always a mensch uh, or whatever the equivalent word is in, in West Virginia parlance. <laughs> um, what is the what what is the 
equivalent of mensch in, in West Virginia. Oh, what would that be? That'd be it'd be a good old boy. It'd be uh, it, uh, it'd be yeah. I think good old boy would probably would probably fit. He's he is one of us, uh, and he is he is kindly intended. So would the equivalent of schmuck be like? He's three ass kissing, three ass kicking shy of being a good guy. I mean, like, what would be the equivalent of schmuck? Oh, let's see. What so if we think of a schmuck, a schmuck is a person who is an idiot, right, and also unpleasant. Is that yeah, correct? a jerk kind of? Yeah. yeah, but but there's a the the schmuck has a. Uh, there's a stupidity to it, right? Well, there's the, there's the schlemiel and schlemazel thing, and I can never remember which one's which, but one is the guy who spills soup a lot, and the other one is the guy who has soup spilled on him. On but him. Those, are, those are different things. But I, but I think I think the, the, and I don't know where the schmuck schmendrick line falls. Yeah, but, yeah that's, that's a tough one. Uh, I, but I will say that, that a uh, schmuck would be, in West Virginia, probably a moron or a blank hole uh, would, be a, uh, would be that, or uh, a pit fan. Oh, there you go. Okay. So <laughs> I think I think what we need to do is we need to get a, a list of Yiddish terms and get it to you. I'll consult with Pod. Yes, and, yes, yes. And we'll do a, a Yiddish to hillbilly translation Lexi, class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I like this. This is this is finally a project. We'll get David Bossy in on this because here is finally a project that is worthy of that kind of effort. Yeah, and like you know, sort of like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, where uh, uh, Andy McDowell is describing her perfect man, and Bill mm -hmm. Murray just keeps saying, "Me, me, me, me." I'm me. really close on this one. Mm -hmm. um, we would see how many of the ones that you know David, you know, says, "I plead guilty." Um, <laughs> all right. So with that, uh, that that uh, what my father would call nano talk. Orders of magnitude smaller than small talk. Uh, we shall depart, and you are always welcome here. And of course, we will devote great energy to your book when it comes out, but we'll have you on here long before that. So, Chris Starwalt, thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure. Okay, so uh, Brother Starwalt has left the studio. Um, I apologize to any of those of you who were looking for a cogent linear narrative with a beginning middle and end but as you know uh that's not how conversations between chris and i work um and uh i just really wanted to have him back on in part because um it's always fun to talk to chris in part because as i have mentioned we are trying to load up some episodes um because i have some travel coming up and um so we were working at a blistering pace and as as much grief and 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 really cruelty i delivered to caleb our producer um uh, i want to thank him for for keeping up with the keeping up with the the goldberg um i was going to say goldbergs but i want no association with whoopi goldberg um other than that a uh, lot of um stuff going on at the dispatch and with me and um we're gonna try to figure out how to do some announcements about various exciting and and various other things uh soon but as you know i like these cryptic shaggy dog Russian in the pine barren statements that then seem to go nowhere. So who knows? Um, and uh, no other announcements that I can think of. So I'll see you next time. <laughs> no, you won't. This is a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>